1: Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Olai Eaton. Today I'm going to be talking with Brian J. Jones about his new book entitled Jim Henson, The Biography. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography. I wonder if you could just kick things off by telling us a little bit about yourself.
2: Uh, I've been writing uh, full time for the last five years, actually, the length of time it took to do this book. Before that, my first biography was a biography of Washington Irving, who, as I constantly had to explain, is not the basketball player. And um, before that, I spent almost 20 years in politics. I've sort of got the uh, political hat trick. I've worked for elected officials at the federal, state, and local level. And uh, I've actually told people that working doing, doing policy and legislative advice for uh, members of Congress is actually pretty good prep for uh, being a biographer because what you're required to do is take information from hundreds of disparate sources with varying opinions uh, try to compress it down to a narrative in two pages or less for your members. So it's actually it was actually pretty good prep work for biography. I didn't know that at the time. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I'd like to start out with a couple questions that we biographers love. And to begin with, um, the book opens with a prologue that is just absolutely amazing. <laughs> Seriously, I was reading it on the tube here in London and was nearly weeping by the end. So, um, oh, yeah, it just perfectly <laughs> captures that. It's like an emotional gut punch that captures the feeling of being a kid and being introduced to these characters and stuff. It's just incredible. Um, But the question here is how did you come around to opening with that, the decision of opening straight away with the scene as opposed to a more traditional introduction?
2: Yeah, you know, that was actually the very last thing I wrote in the Mm -hmm. book because I started it with a prologue that was very different. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually started it with a prologue at first that was all about the the NBC pipes, if you know what those are. Um, They're discussed in the book very briefly now, but it was when Jim was in New York in the 60s. And they were waiting around to uh, go on, I think, Jack Parr. And they had like five or six hours to kill. And they opened up this closet and found all these pipes and all this ductwork, and spent the rest of the afternoon painting the pipes for fun. And I, I thought it was sort of, you know, this is Jim being able to see, you know, the whimsical and the, and the ordinary and, you know, being able to do all this, all this fun things was something that nobody else would ever think of. And I was really pleased with myself for that opening. I really liked. Again, I thought it was all about, you know, Jim's ability to see the silly in, in the ordinary device ordinary things. And my editor loved it and it was that way for a long time. And I actually wrote that very early on. Um but as we got closer and closer to, to uh to putting the book to bed, my editor called me my editor called me back and said, Um, you know, I I love this and, and, and you know, this is the beginning that you and I talked about, but in-house people are saying, Oh geez, I'm sorry, there's my uh My email. I can turn that off. Uh, People are saying, um, you know, can we can we maybe start with something a little more familiar? Mm -hmm. And uh, as soon as I and and I said, well, you know, there's a really great Sesame Street story we could probably tell, but I'm not sure I could do it justice. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Um, So I knew that was the routine I wanted to use because I love that routine with Jim and Joey. And so I so I had, you know, I had enough material uh, around me to put it together. And I had actually talked with a lot of the Muppet performers who performed on Sesame to see if they were there on set that day, if they could remember it. And nobody was. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had to sort of put the story together a little bit with what I, you know, how I knew it worked on Sesame street, things like that. But what I really love about that opening, I mean, apart from the fact that I love that sketch is what the point I really wanted to make is that, and that's and I had a photo I wanted to use at the top of that store at the top of that chapter that the Disney company wouldn't let me use because it showed Jim sitting in a chair Sort of stroking his beard with a smile on his face, and Kermit was laying across his lap. Uh, and I open, you know, and in the opening paragraph. I even talk about that how Kermit's sort of laying in his lap, gaping, you know, down below. And it- and the whole point is Kermit's not alive until Jim puts Kermit on. Yeah. And that you know we talk, a- especially people my age, because I was two when Sesame Tree premiered. So we always talk a lot about magic. And uh, you know, Jim himself even said the magic only work exists because of hard work. And so the point I wanted to sort of make is that. You know, Kermit, until Jim puts him on, isn't anything. Mm-hmm. And then when Jim puts him on, suddenly he's completely alive. And you watch that kid. Jim, Jim is kneeling just out of camera shot on that. He's right on the floor at her feet. Um, and she never sees him. You know, she, she believes in that puppet completely. And that's one of the things I love about Jim and I love about his style of performing. And I love about the Muppets. It's like, is they're so good at it that as soon as that puppet goes up, they disappear. Yeah. And so anyway, so that... So that, that piece, I, I'm so glad people like it because it was one of those things we sort of did at the, at the very end um, when, you know, we sort of decided it, it, that people loved the opening I had before but, but wanted something a little more familiar, a little warmer, uh, and ended up being the right decision. But I really fretted with it for quite a long time. As my office ran last night, it took me about two weeks before I finally sat down to write it because I worried about it uh, for two weeks before that. Because, uh, you know, I mean, one of the things that was really... Um, uh, scary, I guess is the right word about, about writing this book is so much of what's in it, you know, the Muppet show and Sesame street. And so is really important to people.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, you know, it really, it really matters to people and they really mean a lot to people. So it's like, I, you know, I would wake up every morning and look at the mirror and I would say, please do not screw this up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it's fair. It's very important to people. And I really want to make sure I could do things justice and especially something on Sesame street and a routine like that, that I love. Mm-hmm. I just, I really wanted to make sure I could do it right.
1: Yeah, you do. It's. I mean, it's really, really brilliant. Oh,
2: thank you.
1: Definitely. Um, so this is an authorized book, correct?
2: No, it is oh, not.
1: okay. But the family, um, house, I was going to ask you what sources were most helpful, and I know that you had interviewed the family. Yeah, question. well, I,
2: I can still answer that. I mean, okay. it's not authorized in the traditional sense of the right. word. Um, you know, and we we actually went back and forth on that for a while. Um, so, I mean, it's it's basically what you would think it was authorized. I had complete cooperation of the Hensons. Right. Um, you know, they let me use their private archives, which they've never let an independent researcher do before. Um, You know, they gave me they dug into their their Rolodexes for me um, to help me get in touch with people and gave me names of people and, you know, so on. And were really, really helpful. But I think they were also very smart because they you know, they weren't going to make this authorized in the sense that they didn't have uh, text approval. Right. Um, So I gave them actually I gave them every pass of the book to look at because I really wanted to make sure that I was that I was okay that I was that I was right. And the first draft that they got, uh, thank God, I mean, they were participating in that regard because I had a massive chronological error that they all caught. Um, you know, so, so it, was, it was hugely helpful having them involved like that. But uh, they were also really smart in saying that, you know, we're not going to call this authorized per se, because if, you know, if there's something here we don't like, we can walk away. Okay. Um, but and to their credit, um, you know, they 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 were great. And there's stuff in the book that I know was really uncomfortable for them to read. It's true that, you know, there's nothing in it that's not that's not right. Um, but like reading, for example, I think about Jim not being faithful to Jane. Right. Uh, they all knew that everybody knew it. Everybody knew about Jim's wandering eye, but I think to read it for the first time in third person, um, having this, you know, stranger tell you your own story. I know that had to be really tough. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we sat down after I gave them the first pass and, you know, they went through some of it in and, and so we, you know, we really had a serious conversation about some of these things. It was, you know, they would say, I, I really aggressively footnoted. It was almost over footnoted in the first pass for them because I wanted them to see everything, where I got everything. Mm-hmm. And so as they would read along and, you know, if there were anything where they say, who did you talk to? Who gave you that? It was in there. You know, how did you make that connection? How did you come up to that conclusion? It was all in there in the end notes. Yeah. Uh, now, it's not quite that strenuously endnoted now, but I did that for the Henson's. And it really paid off because when, we, you know, they got done reading it, they were like, OK, you know, we, we get it. We see it. Mm-hmm. And so so they were so they were really great.
1: That's great. Um, and you were able to interview the performers as well.
2: I got every major Muppet mm-hmm. performer, um, and I got I got Jerry Nelson. Thank God, because he passed away this mm-hmm. year. Um, the guy who does like the Count and Gobo Fraggle, and mm-hmm. you know, so many, so many important characters and was so pivotal to Sesame Street. Um, and they, to to a man and woman, they were all great. Um, you know, and, they, and it's you know, it's really it's really fun and really interesting because all their all their memories and all their stories. I don't know if it's because there's a part of the brain that needs to do this because they're puppeteers or something, their stories all line up. <laughs> you know, you know there's, not, there's not a lot of having to sort through and read between the lines. At least not, you know, a lot of times. Um, you know, they tend to tell a story and, you know, you go to verify it with somebody else and, and it just lines right up. They were all, they were all really good about recall. And, uh, you know, you would you would bring something up that maybe somebody hadn't thought of in 30 years and they'd go, oh, my God, that's right. And they would start telling you the story and you're looking down your nose going, my God, this is the exact same story. <laughs> Really, I mean, it was really great for like helping you double check yourself. Yeah, that's amazing. Really good memories. Um, but they were they were all you know just lovely, lovely people. Mm-hmm. Um, I did get to see Dave Coles, who does Gonzo, and mm-hmm. Steve Whitmire, who now performs Kermit, um, perform together. They uh, they were doing the video for OK Go when they did the, the theme to the Muppet Show, I think two or three years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I, I went up to Burbank to interview Dave, and when I got out there, he's like, "You know what? We're filming today at a studio. Why don't you just come out here?" And so we were up all night because, you know, it, it, as, when you, as you probably know, when you're going to do work in a studio, you're sitting most of the time. Yes. <laughs> so I interviewed him while we were sitting and got to watch him perform. Mm-hmm. But, you know, another really terrific guy, really genuine, sweet guy. I would interviewed Steve Whitmire over breakfast in Atlanta. And uh, <laughs> it was right after uh, the time change. And we were sitting there eating. And he looked at the clock and he said he went to the bathroom and he came back and I looked at my watch and I said, I, I thought you said you need to be someplace by, by one. Or, and he looked down and he goes, well, it's only, you know, 12. And I'm like, no, it's one. know, <laughs> he said it's five. And he goes, oh, my God. And he said, I have to leave. I have to go record Kermit singing uh, a Christmas song for a, for a stuffed animal. And I was like, wow, there is something <laughs> you do not hear every day. Not um, at all. So, so he was great. And then the last one, Frank Oz, was mm-hmm. an absolute... Delight. light. Um, I was scared to death the first time I went in to go interview him because he has this reputation as being this very crusty curmudgeonly guy.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, which he is, but he's also got a heart of gold, um, still misses Jim to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, concussed the paint off the wall. <laughs> um, which if you have you read the book? Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. I mean which, which all stayed in the book. Yeah. Um,
1: it was I mean
2: Fond <laughs> is the coin of the realm for him and it's so funny. Because mm-hmm. it sounds like he sounds like Bert. It's mm-hmm. like Bert the F bomb, but actually, you know, I, I, I left all that intact. For, and the other thing, is he would not let me record him. Really, um, it's the only person I talked to who wouldn't let me record him. And so I, I didn't expect that the first time. I Did he have
1: re- a reason for it?
2: He's, he says, oh, I don't want that to end up on the fucking internet. Mm, mm-hmm. um, you know, he didn't want digital files being uploaded. Yeah. place. So um, I didn't expect that afterwards. I, I did find, But the first time I didn't really have a big notepad with me or anything. So I was, you know, scribbling in this little team notebook and to try to take notes as quickly as I could. And then I went running across central park to the New York society. Library, Sort <laughs> of parked myself and started down, you know, like data dumping all my notes. so I can still remember it mm-hmm. so I can still fresh. But, um, but he, he was great. And, I, you know, as, as I said, I left all his, all his language intact, sending it to my editor thinking he was going to knock it all out. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it came back intact. And I said, are you sure? And he goes, oh, my God. of course! No, that's great. You yeah. know, so that voice comes right off the page. And it, sh- it certainly does.
1: Definitely. I got very excited. I thought for a moment that you might have gotten to interview Bowie about Labyrinth. And then I checked the in notes and it was.
2: Yeah. No. It was sad. <laughs> oh, and another person who made a really hard run at that mm-hmm. I really wanted to get on the record for, <clears throat> because he's never talked about this publicly. Yeah. Michael. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael Eisner has never talked about the Disney deal, um, and Lisa Henson actually was great and really helped me, you know, try to make a run at him and wrote a letter on my behalf and so on, but he just he just didn't want to do. It. Um, I, you know, he's been, I guess he's been stung countless times. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, probably. You know, but that was one that I really wanted to get that I couldn't get. And, you know, oddly, I, it ended up being a better decision that I didn't get him, but I really wanted to interview a lot of people who had been on The Muppet Show. hmm um and i couldn't get any of them none would talk to me
1: none of them really
2: and i thought yeah, and, and it turned out it was probably better not to because that makes it more about jim
1: right
2: uh you know and his experience but i was really you know i really wanted to talk with you know steve martin and mm-hmm. alice, alice cooper and you know berkshire and i just i, I couldn't really get anywhere it was mm-hmm. going to be it's going to be just a, a, a hang-up um and it, and it turned out as i said it turned out better because that way you could focus more on jim and the muppet performers than that
1: mm-hmm. so what drew you to him as a biographical subject
2: uh, you know, I, mean, I would say, you know, why would I write about it? why? Why wouldn't I? Yeah,
1: exactly.
2: uh, so part of its I'm, I'm sort of the perfect age for it. I mean, I was, as I was saying before, I, I was two when the Muppet show, not the Muppet show, when Sesame Street premiered. Um, I was nine when the Muppet show came on the air. I saw the Muppet movie in the theater. I saw the Dark Crystal in the theater, which makes me a Um I saw Labyrinth in the theater, which Lisa Henson was impressed with. Um, so, you know, at Fraggle Rock, I mean, I was 16 when Fraggle Rock debuted, but I had HBO back in the fledgling days of HBO. And I remember seeing Fraggle Rock when it debuted. So, you know, he's one of those guys I was always aware of. I was a fan of. I'm not one of these. I was never one of these. You know, if, if there's a Muppet equivalent of a Trekkie, I was never like that. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I mean, I was, I was, you know, a, a big fan of Jim and his work. Um, I, I knew his work. There was a great book that came out in 1981 called Of Muppets and Men, and it's all about the making of The Muppet Show. And I used to check that book out of the library until the cover fell off of it. I read that book tons of times. And it's all about behind the scenes of The Muppet Show. It's not really about Jim. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, that was when I knew that, you know, there were people who, because even as a kid, I always read all the credits and stuff, and I read the TV guides. so I knew the people did this. And I loved the Muppets and Men because, I mean, after I read that, I could tell you there was Jim Henson, Frank Oz, Jerry Nelson, Richard Hunt, Dave Go- Like, I knew all the names of the Muppet performers, mm-hmm. and I was talking about that. Um, so, you know, so I always I always knew about these people. And Jim was one of those guys, I, I'd never really even thought about him for as a biography, as a source of subject of biography. And after I finished the Irving book, I think I was if I remember right, I was actually reading and I don't even remember how I came across it. I was reading Jim's Wikipedia page. And it wasn't like I was like, I wonder if I could write about Jim Henson. Just somehow I remember I was on his page.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, and I I read something and I thought, hmm, I wonder where they got that. Like anybody ever cites anything on Wikipedia? But actually yeah. Muppet fans yeah, Muppet fans are actually pretty good about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I scrolled down to the bottom of the page and you know, all the books cited were like Jim Henson The Works and Jim Henson Designs and Doodles and you know and it was all it was all about the work and right and you know, rightly so but there was no biography. Hmm. And so I, I called my agent and I said, you know, is, is there a Robert Caro <laughs> out there? who <when> <laughs> has been doing this for 20 years or something and there's going to be a gigantic book on this. Planet? And, uh, you know, said, it seems kind of like low hanging fruit.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, so he made some queries and, and, you know, didn't come up with anything. And I actually went over to the University of Maryland where Jim went to school and there's a video archivist over there and talked with the archivist over there, a really neat guy named Vin Novara, and uh, we talked about Jim for a while and, you know, and Jim's legacy. And I said, you know, why is why is there why, why is there no bio of Jim we kind of expecting him to go? Well, actually, I've been working on Jim's biography for the last seven, you know, something like that. And, uh, and he looked at me and he's like, you know, I, I, I don't know. And so um, so he actually gave me contact information in the Jim Henson legacy, which is the organization that uh, Jane and a number of Jim's colleagues set up right after he died to sort of perpetuate Jim, not the Muppets, but, you know, Jim Henson. And I emailed um, the executive director, a really lovely guy named Arthur Nouveau, who was Jim's publicist. And, um, and I, I wrote this long email that I sat on for like a week trying to make sure I had every word exactly the way I wanted. <laughs> and, you know, that I and, um, and, you know, and I wrote to him and, and Arthur got right back to me. And Arthur really got it because the point I was the, the sort of appeal I made was is that it had been 20 years, which I think is still really tough math for them. Um, yeah. it, you know, for a lot of people, it still seems very fresh. And when you say twenty years, people are like, "My God, is it really twenty years?" Um, and so, the, the point I was trying to make is, it was it was probably time to get people on the record to do this. You know, Bernie Brillstein, his agent, had passed away, and his head writer, Jerry Joel, had passed away. And you know, it, it, we, we sort of finally had the element of a ticking clock involved, which hadn't really happened before. So, I think that was partly um, what sort of triggered, you know, got their attention. Uh, But we talked about it for two years, actually, um, before they would say yes. They're a very private family, Mm -hmm. very close knit, Um, and so it just you know was sort of two years of getting to know each other. And finally, what, you know, and, and it was hot and cold. I'd get a yes, and then I'd get a no, then I'd get a maybe, then I'd get a yes again. And, you know, we just kept, and I just sort of, it, I, I took Charles Shields' advice with the, when he was dealing with Kurt yeah. Just kind of like, get up in their grill and stay there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did, nicely. And, but what finally pushed it open was, you know, after about a year and a half of this, I, I told Lisa Henson, you know, I said, you guys are a Hollywood family, so let me make you an audition tape. And so what I did was I actually wrote us a just a mock-up sample chapter just using information from the newspapers here in D.C. because Jim's first work was here in the D.C. area, um, you know, in Maryland. And so I found – I went through the Washington Post and, you know, found every mention of Jim when he was in high school and college and performing at WRC here locally in the NBC channel and, and you know, looked at the history of television and, you know, and, did some research on the art of puppetry and some other books that had been written on Jim and some of, and I just sort of put together this this sample chapter on Jim performing in you know 1955 in Washington DC. And when I sent that out to him, that I mean that I think finally you know was the tipping point, as they say. I mean that was where I think they were like, okay, we get it. You know, we see how you do this. We see how you write. We see how you use your sources that you're not bringing an agenda to this, that you're, you know, you're a storyteller and reporting. And I think that really helped. And, be, and after that happened, we were sort of off to the races. And then once they said yes, um, you know, I, you're in all the way at that point, mm-hmm. you're a made man. And, uh, and then after that, I had two and a half years to actually write the book. And at that point, so goodness. That was a really long answer. No,
1: right yeah, it was great. It's I feel like we, people often don't talk about the, the process in that detail and from the beginning and all the ins and outs of it are so fascinating.
2: I mean, yeah. I mean, when people say how long did it take, I would say, you know, it took about five years, but two of them were, you know, convincing the family to say yes, yeah. which was huge. Cause, and Lisa Hansen at one point said, you know, if we don't say yes, are you going to do this anyway? And I said, you know, uh, no, because the only way to really do the story right, to do it truthfully and respectfully, is with your involvement. You know, and I said, I, I need those archives, first of all. I've got to have those archives because Jim saved everything. <laughs> um, but, you know, having having their voice in that book, I think, is so huge. And yeah, so really especially is. Jane, you know, who talks very openly about, you know, their marriage and, you know, Jim's infidelity. And, and you know, she, she was so open and honest. I think she. She was really ready, I think, to, you know, to get her side down, to get things on the record that she hadn't talked about openly before.
1: Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you could discuss a bit how Henson got into puppetry, because I love the fact that it was through Home Ec.
2: Yeah, you know, <laughs> what What I love about Jim, and, and this always stuns people because people always think, oh, well, you know, he must have been, he must have always wanted to play with puppets mm-hmm. and must have done, you know, all these puppet things as a little kid. No, Jim, never, according to him never saw a puppet show, never had any interest in puppets, never even played with puppets. You know, and that's, it's so, it's funny because it's one of those big, um, you know, it, it colors people's memories. You know, I was talking with some people in University Park at one point, uh, who thought that they remember seeing Jim at like age three performing in a puppet show with the Henson household. And first of all, the numbers were wrong because Jim wasn't living in Maryland at that time. So it couldn't have happened. But uh, you know, Jim said, I never, I, you know, I never played with puppets. I didn't have any interest in puppets. What Jim wanted to do more than anything was be on television. He was a huge TV fan, you know, happened to live in the greater metropolitan DC area, which was a great place to be for early TV because you had to say it with me. Four channels, <laughs> uh, you know. So it was actually good, you know. And and for the early days of TV, it, it sort of like it always made me think of the early days of cable. Like you probably weren't even around only when this happened, but like in the early days of cable, they would actually give you a box that sat on top of your TV. That oh yeah, top, we had that. And you would like shotgun through every channel, just to watch anything that was on cable, you know. And you'd watch crappy public access channels and just I mean, it was like all this interesting weird stuff going on on early days of cable. Mm-hmm. And the early days of TV were kind of like that too. And Jim was fascinated by. The idea that like you're sitting there in your living room in University Park, Maryland, watching something that's taking place in New York City. You know, he loved that. He loved that it was instantaneous, uh, fascinated by TV, wanted to get on TV any way he could, uh, you know, knocked on doors and, and TV stations, written trying to get on TV. And when he was a senior in high school, there was an ad in the local newspapers looking for people, young people, it said, to perform marionettes, but still, you know, close enough to puppets, for a children's TV show they were going to launch on the local CBS station. So Jim, who knew nothing about puppets, had never seen a puppet show, uh, checked books out of the library and taught himself how to build and perform puppets in the span of about two weeks, probably less than that, and went down to uh, WTOP, the local CBS station, and auditioned and got that job. And it got him in the door. And that was really all he wanted those puppets for. I called that chapter Means to an End because that's really what puppets were to Jim Henson in the early days. It got him on TV, which is where he really wanted to be. Um, but what then is, is so cool about Jim is – and he always said that you know he didn't know what he was doing. And I think that's why he was so good at it. <laughs> Is because he didn't know what the rules were for it. Okay. So you know, until Jim came along, and and this is like one of his really big contributions to puppetry, you know, in general, but especially on television. Jim had puppets built for television. Jim wasn't a filmed puppet show; he was puppets on you know made for television. So you take something like Kukla, Fran, and Ollie, which was you know a humongous show, but Bert Holstrom essentially, you know, built a puppet theater with a curtain and would stick the puppets up behind the curtain and, you know, Fran would talk to them. So it was essentially a filmed, you know, on for television puppet show. Mm-hmm. You know, they still built the puppet theater. Jim figured out immediately that if I'm on television, I don't need to build a puppet theater because the four sides of that TV screen are the puppet theater. I mean that makes perfect sense to yeah. us now, but yeah. nobody, had, nobody, really thought of that. So you know, Jim realized you could do. So if you do that, you can poke a puppet in from the bottom of the screen, and you can pull him off, and then poke him in from the side, and that makes it really funny. You know, you can bring him in from any part of the screen you want. You can get them as close to the camera as you want. You can get them as far away as you want. You can play in that entire space. That entire space becomes your world for the puppet. Huge innovation, but again, nobody had thought of that, hidden in plain sight. The second thing that he did is he realized. And again, this also makes perfect sense, but nobody thought of this really, that if the four sides of that screen are defining your performance, then you better make sure you know exactly what that looks like. And so this is still the Muppet style performance to this day. If you go watch them perform on Sesame Street, uh, the performers are never looking over their heads at the puppet over up, up, up in their arm. They're always looking down at the floor because Jim figured out, well, put a TV monitor on the floor at your feet and make sure you can see your performance in real time. And again, that's a huge innovation hidden in plain sight. Um, you know, you, you can watch your performance in real time. So you, you can do easy things, like you make sure your head's not in the shot, of course. Um, you know, you can always check your eye lines and make sure that they're lined up and looking at it. But it also does something really interesting. It, it Puppeteers, especially performing in that style where you're watching it on a monitor, that's really the only art form of doing it that way where you can actually be an audience member at the same time you're performing. Right. I mean, it's a very intimate, unique thing. Um, you know, you can adjust your performance. I mean, you see how the audience is gauging, and you're looking at it too, and you can decide what's working and, and what's not, and, and adjust accordingly. I mean, it's, it's a real, it's a, it's a huge innovation, and it's an innovation that you know only would have come up, only would work on TV. Um, and so that's, you know, that's still the style of performing they use to this day. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And it was fascinating because it was a mirror image, correct? So they had to yeah, reverse
2: mean, yeah, it the, as well. The real <laughs> gyration. Yeah. It's not, it's, it's, it's not mirror. It's like the obverse, I guess, or something. Yeah. So it's like if you're, you know, it's like a, 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 a like a calisthenics instructor standing up facing the eye <laughs> right. go to your left. And she has to go to her right because she's going the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that's kind of the way it is. If, the, if you want to make the puppet on the screen go left, you've got to go to your right. And that's right. the only real mental gyration there is. Yeah. Jim always said it was like riding a bike. You know, you, you never forgot it. And Jerry Joel was like, uh, no, it's not really like riding a bike. <laughs> 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 it actually, especially if you stop doing it a while and you come back. He said you have to really think about it again. But yeah. these Muppet performers have been doing it for so long, I'm sure they don't even think about it.
1: Right. Um, so <clears throat> we'll talk about the Muppets themselves in a minute. But where did the word itself come from?
2: The, the big urban myth for a long time was that Muppet was a combination of the words marionette and puppet. Uh, Jim himself even said that for a while and then back, you know, walked it back um, and said, you know, really, we, we we don't we're not really marionettes. You know, there, there's really no, you know, mar- some people say, well, you know, you've got the strings in reverse on a Muppet. And that's why it's a reverse marionette. It's really not. I mean, putting an arm rod on a puppet, which is how they maneuver the arms on a lot of the puppets is, is a, you know, sort of basic puppetry there's a reason it's called an arm rod so you know jim said we didn't really do anything with marionettes we're primarily sort of puppets so you know he backed off saying that muppet was marionette and puppet um, what jim finally said and, and I, I tend to believe this is he said it was just a, a word that really sounded good because mm-hmm. um, jim loved the way you know words sounded he that was important to him was the way you know coming up with names like a name like kermit um, Jim had a childhood friend named Kermit, but he didn't name Kermit the Frog after Kermit. He just liked that word. You know, it's got that hard K and then that M and then the T hard at the end. Um, a word like frackle were these monsters in a, in a TV show in the 60s and then became frackle later. Um, so Jim, you know, Jim liked the way words sounded. He, it, names meant a lot. He really thought a lot about this. When he would create characters, um, a lot of times he would write on his yellow pads. He'd have just an entire page of names trying to figure out what is this character to be called? You know, that, that was really important. him. So Muppet was something that he wouldn't have done sort of casually. It really had to sound good to him. Mm-hmm. Um, came up with the name actually very early, even earlier than people thought. It um, came up with it. I think even as early as late 1954, which is much earlier than I think initially thought. Um, I argued in there that I think too, he may have picked it up. There was a, a local television show here in the district, that ran every single day. And you got to remember, Jim, in the early days of TV, watched everything on TV, read the television listings every day. Went it was a local show called Hoppity Skippity and Moppet Movies. Moppet meaning child. Mm-hmm. And when you see the photos of that set across the back wall in, in probably cut out paper letters, it says Moppets across the back wall in big letters. So I don't think it would be too big of a stretch for Jim to have been like, oh, you know, that's a great word and you know, combining puppet with that and making it Muppets as well. Just because again, it's, it's a word that really sounds cool.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so, so I think, you know, I don't, I, I don't believe there's any truth in that. It's a combination of Marionette and puppet and Jim himself sort of debunked that. Um, and when I, and when I pitched the theory about Muppets, Jane Henson went, you know, said, you know, I think you, you're probably right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, once again, it, it's something that you as a reader can decide which version of that you believe on it. Uh, I put both stories in there. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but the marionette puppet, I don't believe is true. Right.
1: Um, so I wonder if you could tell us a bit about what his creative process was like and maybe use Kermit the, Kermit the Frog to show that.
2: Yeah. Jim, first of all, was, was always sort of the ultimate collaborator. People loved to work with him because he would always give performers, for example, the time they needed to find a character. Uh, and I'll use Miss Piggy's example on that. But let me get back to Kermit. Yeah. Um, you know, starting from very young, Jim was the guy who we sort of talked about even with, you know, tell, you know figuring out how, how puppets work on TV. Could always figure out how to make something ordinary into something sort of special and magical. And I always use the word magic very sparingly because I wanted people in this book to understand that it's, it's not magic. It's really hard work. Um, but uh, Kermit was actually just, you know, built out of Jim's mother's old discarded coat. Uh, with ping-pong ball cut in half with slash circles for eyes. I mean, it's a very simple puppet. Um, it's blue. So when you see Kermit in the Smithsonian and wondering why he's blue, it's because it was actually made out of his mother's code. And, um, you know, and that was really it. And, it was, and Kermit wasn't a frog when he was first built. He was just sort of this abstract character. Uh, Jim had this TV show when he was a freshman in college that was called Salmon Friends that ran twice. eventually ran twice a night on the local NBC station. Huge TV show locally got them a lot of attention. Um, it brought them the attention of Wilkins Coffee Firm. And so Jim was doing commercials with Muppets in them when he was still in still in college, making a lot of money. Um, but, you know, when, when he first started off, that TV show it was Sam, who was sort of this human character. And then his friends were all these very vague sort of abstract beings, including Kermit. who was sort of Kermit the thing. And when we look at him now, it's really hard not to see him as a frog, but mm-hmm. you, know, you see that early puppet, he's got padded feet, and he doesn't have his little collar. Um, and over time, um, as they kept using that puppet more and more, they, they finally put him in a special where he was the narrator and doing a minstrel sort of thing, and he had a little minstrel's collar on. And as soon as you see Kermit with that collar on, you can't really see him as anything but a frog, and that was sort of the turning point for Kermit. And Jim just kind of went with it. It was one of those things where you know, he was willing to let things evolve. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's something like, um, you know, Sesame Street. One of the things Jim loved about Sesame Street is it let him do a lot of different things apart from just Muppets. Like he's the one who did what we always called the Baker films where they would, you know, count. And then the Baker would stand at the top of the stairs and fall down the stairs. And, um, you know, Jim did all those little short films. He really loved being, you know, doing do, doing stuff. You know, you don't even you don't even associate with Muppets. I, I love the 60s uh, in Jim's career. So it's, it's before Sesame Street. And in the 60s, Jim is still really trying to figure out what it is he wants to be mm-hmm. and what he wants to do with his life, what he wants to be when he grows up. You know, at one point, one of his professors in college said, why are you wasting your time with those puppets? And, uh, and Jim had figured out that he really wasn't wasting his time, and, and, and especially once they started really paying the bills with commercials. But Jim always considered himself in the 60s in particular an experimental filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And he did a short film called Time Piece that was nominated for an Oscar. And he was considering opening uh, these sort of weird experimental adult nightclubs. You know, he talked about having an inflatable building that he would put in a vacant lot and make these little short films that would, you know, play in time to the music. And he would project them on women dancing and on, you know, sort of faceted surfaces. And they reflect, you know, really forward thinking, interesting stuff um and then sesame street came along and that sort of defined his his narrative for a while he was going to be the puppeteer and again he was willing to kind of go with that you know i mean frank goss said that jim was always willing to you know to go with the flow that's what made him really good at a lot of things he did he would he would embrace what you know embrace the now but he was also always looking forward and um only jim henson could have taken a show like the muppet show the biggest show in the entire world you know it's been on near five years top of its game and jim says this is a really nice show and takes it off the air because he wants to go make movies Mm -hmm. Um, he does the same thing with fraggle rock it's on hbo five beers a huge hit solid without without the fraggles there is no game of thrones there is no sopranos i mean it's the first hbo original series a big hit and jim says again that's a nice show he always said, very nice show, takes it off the air so we can go do some other things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he always had this creative wanderlust. Even in the middle of the biggest show in the world, he's, he wants to go do movies. He always wants to go do something else. He always wants to figure out what's next. Um, you know, so that's John Stone, one of the creators of Sesame Street, said he would have been creatively restless had he lived to be 109. <laughs> uh, he was just one of these guys that was, was just always looking ahead. What are we going to do next? You know, that's embrace the now, but that's think about what's coming up next as well. There's there's so many more fun things we can be doing. Let's not define ourselves.
1: Yeah. And that was one of the things that was was really striking. I was not aware of the diversity of the different projects that he had. I mean, there was obviously Fraggle Rock and the Muppets, and I remembered Labyrinth, but I didn't know about the experimental films and all the other things. So that was really interesting to read about. Definitely. Um, I wonder if you could talk a bit about putting the eyes on the Muppets. because I thought (laughs) that was a really fascinating thing, but I knew nothing about it. It was just really interesting.
2: Jim knew that the eyes were pivotal in making the character. He, When he was in college, he had done um, posters for a lot of the theater productions. And there's a poster for uh, a, that Jim made for a play called Nine Girls. And it was all about, uh, well, I can't even really remember the story. But it's basically about, you know, it's a murder mystery and a, kind of a whodunit. And then for the poster, Jim's got eight sort of stick figure, you know, white stick figures with big lollipop heads staring at one figure in the middle. And... It's basically just big white heads with eyes in them. And so Jim you know, even figured out then that the eyes have it. The eyes are what can make, can make something work. That's what gives your character personality. Um, so he always knew that the placement of the eyes was, was pivotal. And he always, uh, when Don Saline, his lead puppet builder, was placing as it was usually the last thing they put on to the Muppet. Um, Jim said he always made sure he was there because you had to make sure that those eyes, you know, that they, they that they lined up, that they did what you needed them to do. There's a they, they always called it the Henson triangle, like the relationship between the eyes and the nose. Uh, you know, if they're too far apart, then the eyes, you know, they're, they're not focused. So they they sort of figured out, uh, and it's not like a written down math problem, but they call this the Henson triangle. Figured out like where that those eyes need to be in placement to the character's nose, the character's mouth to do what you want it to do, and. Muppet eyes are actually just very slightly crossed, but that gives them the focus. And especially if you're on television, you can't have a character that looks like it's got a blank stare. It's got to look like it's looking straight at you. And so Jim figured figured out that that's, you know, the the eyes really matter. And he knew that was so important. So when Don Celine would put those eyes on, Jim was always there. Um, and, and Muppet Muppet eyes are always correct. What I think is really interesting is Miss Piggy is one of the few Muppet characters even now who still has colored irises. Uh, a lot of them still just have the round eyes with the black dot in the middle of them. There aren't a lot of them that have those big, beautiful eyes. Piggy's one of the few that has those.
1: Um, could you talk a bit about his family? Because he did have quite a complicated relationship with his wife, and um, but, but still was quite a family man as well.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, family was really important to Jim. I, I think, um, you know, I don't think you can make the sort of contributions to Sesame street that Jim made, unless you you know, are legitimately a great father and care about your kids and value, you know, what they have to say and what they do. Um, you know, and Jim had five kids, um, born in a span of 10 years. So it's like 60, 61, 63, 65, and then 70. So, you know, five, five of them there the first, the first three, only a few years apart, um, three girls and two boys, and, and then uh, Jane, his, his wife, he'd actually met her when he was a freshman in college. Um, Jane was, and what attracted Jim to Jane uh, initially was Jane was hugely talented, a great puppeteer uh and jim was putting together his salmon friend show at that time and needed help and knew jane was was the person to help him was hugely talented great w- great with pottery you know she's a great she's just she's really really talented in textiles and you know she's a beautiful beautiful builder and things like that so jim really was attracted to that talent uh and the early days uh, both he and jane were with other people and even engaged to other people for a while and after jim came back from his european trip um Jim actually dropped out of college for a little while to to explore Europe. And and it was a sort of a pivotal trip for Jim because when he was in Europe, he found out that people in Europe took puppetry very seriously. Um, You know, he saw a lot of really neat shows with really well-designed characters and sets and saw how the audiences responded to it. And he came back from Europe very fired up, saying, you know, puppetry is a legitimate art. We can do this and not feel silly about it. I mean, it was really a turning point for him as an artist. Um, But he also came back from Europe telling Jane, you know, we're going to get married now. And we're going to, you know, we're going to form this company. <laughs> and uh, as Jane said, it was this very sort of business-like proposal. This, I was, you know, she was part of the grand plan. <clears throat> and so, you know, that was sort of the way Jim had approached his marriage to Jane. Even. They were always, you know, creative partners, first and foremost, always. Um, but, you know, as especially once you get into the 70s, um, you know, everybody knew that Jim had a little bit of not just creative wanderlust, but, uh, you know, that he, he was not always entirely faithful to Jane. Um, Jane knew about it. Jim knew, you know, and Jim uh, was uh, embarrassed about it, tried to be discreet about it. Jane always called it going out, which is a very polite way of putting it, which I use that term in the book because I just fell in love with it, actually. But Jim, you know, was, was having affairs behind Jane's back, but Jane knew about it. <clears throat> uh, but again, he always tried to be very discreet. Um, Jim didn't let, you know, Jim never denied his faults. He just didn't ever let them define him but he and Jane, you know, never, they were, they were separated the last seven years of their marriage. Um, never got divorced. I think they probably would have been, um, had Jim lived, but, uh, because they were sort of getting everything in order. Um, but, you know, Jim always valued Jane's input, even when they were separated, you know, at the, in the late 80s, especially when he was getting ready to sell the Disney. So he always sought her input. I mean, he knew she had great instincts. She had great instincts for performers. You know, she was his talent scout. She was the one who would say, you know, I saw this kid performing in, 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 in Atlanta and I met him. Uh, you should hire him. And that's where they got Steve Whitmire, who still does Kermit to this day. So Jane had really good instincts for that kind of thing. So Jim, you know, Jim really valued her as a creative partner. Um, not always so much as a wife, but, um, you know, it's interesting that the the night that he went into the hospital right before he died, you know, she was with him. She was in his apartment. She had called over there. First of all, she was mad at him and she was going to call over and kind of yell at him. And then as she stayed on the phone with him a little longer, she realized that he wasn't well and said, do you want me to come over? And Jim said, you know, I wish you would. So, you know, really interesting, even to the end, you know, they always sort of still had this this closeness about them. Uh, you know, they always sort of they were sort of got each. They always wanted, as Cheryl Henson said, you know, they always wanted each other to be happy, even if they couldn't make each other happy.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but as a father, he was an extraordinary dad, um, you know, wasn't wasn't a Disneyland dad. He wasn't this guy who kind of parachute in and go do something fun and then disappear. You know, he worked really, really hard. Um, But all the kids said, you know, he would be in the city all day and then he would come home and he would stay up and he would build stuff with us. You knew knew he'd been in the workshop all day building stuff. And yet he'd come home and he'd build a dollhouse and we'd build puppets and we'd do, you know, silly stuff and do crafts and painting and pottery. Um, So, you know, they loved uh, the kind of dad he was. As they all got older, they said one of the best ways, though, to be with him was to work with him. So a lot of them would spend their summers uh, off of school, working uh, in the Muppet Workshop in London, for example, when Jim was doing the Muppet Show and, and helping him out on the film sets, and Brian Henson, his oldest son, uh, would actually perform. Uh, he's the one that figured out how to make a whole team of Muppets ride bikes together, for example. <laughs> the Great Muppet Cave, he said, well, "You know, you can actually, you should actually just connect the bikes with a bar, and then we'll we'll tow them." And if you watch the opening. If you watch that scene, if you look very closely, you can see Brian off in the distance pulling them with his bicycle. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, they loved working with him. They said he was always at his best when he was working. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Jim always had them around. You know, we always talked about he always wrote even his private diaries that he loved having them around. Jim loved being a dad.
1: Um, a couple of the things that struck me throughout your portrayal of him was one, just his relentless hopefulness, and also his complete avoidance of any conflict whatsoever. Um, so, what was your impression of him while you were writing? Did it change as you got to know him more? Or yeah,
2: yeah, yeah I'm, I'm glad you picked up on that all because you know that was one of the things people always ask you. What surprised you? Yeah. And the, the whole thing about being like, I mean, I call it pathologically conflict-averse.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> I mean, I yeah, you know, I mean, you always. Uh, And the other thing I would say is you know cynics need to beware because Jim really kind of is what you think he is. He's a genuinely good guy, a very optimistic guy, Um, but almost to a fault because he doesn't want to have that conflict. You know, I mean, he he won't even argue with his wife. um, You know, which just pisses her off, and she gets madder and madder, and he doesn't want to argue. So you know, so I so I had a suspicion. You know that you know everybody loved Jim and everybody wanted to be around Jim, but he just you know part of the reason is he just he didn't want that conflict. and on a similar, on a related matter, I was also really surprised at what a great businessman he was. Um, you know, you don't you don't end up with a corporate a company that straddles the ocean uh, unless you're a great businessman. Yeah. But even that sort of conflict-averse mentality would creep into his the business side of things. You know, he was really great. You know, he had really great business instincts, but it made him crazy when the you know at the staff level they weren't functioning like an organism. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things he, you know about puppeteers is when they're working together, especially when you're all tangled up, like they have to sort of think and function as one when you get into the business side of things that didn't always happen. And that really would frustrate Jim. And um, but he had this so powerful magnetic personality that, you know, people wanted him around and the poor guy, you know, wherever he is, feels loved and taken care of and special and wherever he's not feels unloved and angry and, you know, unimportant. And, you know, and he's really trying to, to, to straddle this and say, you know, I love, <laughs> you know, I love everybody. And, uh, you know, New York screaming for him when he's in London and when he's in New York, London's screaming, why aren't you over here? And he's got a cinematographer, you know, Ossie Morrison who's like this incredibly well experienced, you know, longtime cinematographer who's like almost having this nervous meltdown because Jim's not on set there with him. You know, I mean, it's just just this really powerful personality. Um, but, you know, there's this, there's a story in there. I love, uh, where the sort of conflict of verse creeps into the running the business. Where um Richard Hunt, the puppeteer who does scooter and you know did a lot of really important to them did Don Music, a character I love on Sesame Street, although they don't use him anymore because he used to bang his head on the piano. <laughs> um, and little kids like me would bang our heads on the yeah, piano. I remember that. And um and you know Richard Hunt had gotten in trouble in during the Muppet Show era because he had been at a party in London and was openly bad mouthing a guest. Um, I couldn't get anybody to go on the record who that guest was. I can only speculate who it was. But anyway, the point is, is that was a big no, no, um, because at that time, especially they really were begging for people to do the Muppet show. It was sort of their first early seasons. And, um, and it was Jim's good name. And so David laser, Jim's producer and sort of chief of staff, they had connecting offices over in the Muppet offices in London. said, you know, Jim, we got to get Richard over here and we got to read him the riot act. And, you know, we're going to bad cop, bad cop Richard. I'm going to bring him over. I'm going to yell at him and I'm going to, open the door between our offices and you're going to yell at him and really clean his cloth because this is your good name. Hey, okay? this can't happen. Jim agrees to that. And so David laser brings in Richard Hunt and starts, you know, bawling him out. And Richard, Richard Hunt is crying and he's apologizing and he's a man, you know, and Richard Hunt's like 20 years old, 19 or 20. You got Richard Hunt who's very young. And so this is like, you know, Jim's family almost. And Richard's crying and he's upset. And David Laser says, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry, Richard, but now you've got to go in and see Jim. And so they open that door between the offices and Jim comes out from behind his desk and just wraps Richard Hunt up in this big bear hug. Like he just he just could not do it. He, you know, sort of sort of sold poor David Laser down the river because, you know, he said, yes, I, I'm in this with you. We're going to bad cup. And Jim just could not do it. Uh, it was just, you know, that was just too much conflict, too much drama for Jim. Mm-hmm. And then what was the first, I'm sorry, only, what was the first part of your question? You oh. talked about the conflict averse, and what was the first part? Oh, um,
1: the relentless hopefulness.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like he really you know,
1: was that optimistic.
2: He really wasn't optimistic. You know, I it, what's really inspiring about Jim is, you know, it, sort of his, his entire career arc is about following your bliss. Mm-hmm. Um, now, one of the luxuries Jim had is he could always kind of afford to fail because he was successful early on.
0: Right.
2: Um, he, you know, he never really... Considered, I guess, I guess he can, at one point he said something like he was wondering, you know, he always knew he would be successful, but he was wondering what it was taking so long. I think he was talking more about like international fame at that point, because he was already hugely successful. But, you know, he had money coming in from commercials from the time he was 18, 19 years old. So he could do a lot of those experimental films and things like that in the 60s. Um, but, you know, so he was, he was really able to do, you know, things he wanted to do. And I think that that puts you in a really good place, which is why I think he was so optimistic about it. And, you know. For Jim, projects, a lot of, especially in the last maybe 20 years, projects had to really matter. Projects had to mean something. I mean, that's one of the reasons that he was so excited about Sesame Street. Um, you know, he he liked the he liked the goal of Sesame Street. He liked the fact that they were trying to make television relevant again. I mean, because Jim loved TV, and he really wanted TV to be doing good things, and so he really liked the goals of Sesame Street. He really liked that they were, you know, teaching about letters and numbers to kids that couldn't read, but also about acceptance and, you know, all the things they do so well in Sesame Street. You know, when he was doing Fraggle Rock, he told his writing team as they were coming up with the concept, you know, sort of, sort of tongue-in-cheek, but only Jim could say this with a straight face, was, um, You know, let's come up with a show that will stop war. And so you have Fraggle Rock, which is about three different sizes of of Muppets who coexist uh, with each other sort of symbiotically, whether they mean to or not. Uh, You know, and that's that's sort of the underlying theme of Fraggle Rock, something like Muppet Babies, the cartoon. You know, it's about problem solving. It's about the imagination approaching a problem in different ways and everything still works. So, thing you know, projects really had to matter to Jim because the world itself mattered to Jim. He wasn't one of these guys who was, you know, out there, you know, he, he was never a Harry Belafonte activist or a Ted Turner activist. But, you know, the environment was really important to him and he would lend his name to things like that. Um, so, you know, Jim, you know, Jim believed in the good in the world. And, and I think part of it was, um, you know, he... He he, he was he didn't have a, a religious faith per se. He sort of liked everything, was interested in everything, would explore everything, everybody's worldview. Um, you know, something like the Dark Crystal. He has people around him saying, you know, you are crazy to do this. And especially at one point when he wants to buy the film back. Uh, from from uh, Robert Holmes court, Everyone says, you know, Jim, you're crazy. And he just says, you know, I can't, th- they're going to mess it up. You know, <laughs> I, I have to own this so I can make sure it's done right. I mean, Jim was always willing to go there, always willing to sort of follow his bliss. Even when people were telling him, you're crazy, or that's a bad idea, or, you know, that's, that's not what you should be doing. And, and, you know, it almost always worked out for him. Mm-hmm.
1: So speaking of religion, I think one of the biographical details that most people know um, is the myth that he died because he was Christian scientist uh, yeah. because he was raised Christian science. And um, right. so if you could talk a little bit more about the broader question of his religious affinity, uh, and also if you want to debunk the, the death myth while we're here, you're welcome to.
2: Sure. Yeah, that, that was one of the, sort of the sort of the urban legends that popped up around uh, Jim's death was that he had not sought medical attention because he when, you know, was not only conflict averse, but medical averse and doctor averse, uh, which is not true. Um, Jim was raised Christian science. His mother was a Christian science. His father was not And Jim's um, grandfather was Christian science. His grandmother, again, not so much. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it went back two generations to the Henson family. But while Jim was raised Christian science, he was non practicing. Uh, Jim saw doctors, he took medication, you know, primarily things like Advil and so on. But, um, but, uh, you know, Jim was not, Jim, Jim, was not, you know, didn't have a religious problem with doctors or medication or anything like that. Uh, as Brian Henson said, he never had a guy, like he never regularly really saw a doctor. Yeah. But I think mostly, um, well the, well, the story I always tell here is, um, I, I think it's because Jim was, was a guy. Yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, I was in, I was, I was in London in 2009 Doing research on this book and sort of walking, you know, the neighborhood where Jim had lived and, you know, going to see El Street Studio and so on. You know, I couldn't get into the studio, so I just sort of peered at it through the fence. Um, but anyway, that was the summer that swine flu was sort of <laughs> sort of raging in London. And I got swine flu oh, when I was wow. in London. And I was actually staying at, in, in, in Oxford. My wife was at a conference and I was laid up in the hotel room for like three days running a massive fever and sweating and cold and then hot and, you know, shivering and then burning up. And, uh, and you know, I almost literally thought I was going to die and I didn't do anything because I'm a guy and I'm like, you know what, this is awful, but I'm just going to ride this out. I'll be fine. I'll get over. It. And I did.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but you know, no one ever thinks they're fatally ill. Yeah. And you know, I think Jim just, just didn't think he was fatally ill. but you know, Jim was, was a healthy guy. That's the thing. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't ever one of these guys who was sick very often is a lot of people said being sick was too much of an inconvenience for him. Um, you know, we had this crazy schedule, this crazy work ethic, and that was—it was inconvenient to be sick. Um, and people didn't never really remember him being sick. Jim never missed work, so when he got this, um, it ended up being a, a massive strap infection. But when he was in the early stages of it, he just thought he had the flu. Mm-hmm. Uh the, the, the times when you're, you know, reading about it and as I was researching it, that you kind of wish he would have taken a little more seriously is, um, you know, sort of the weekend before he he'd coughed blood a few times. And that's one of those where you're like, come on. Yeah. Um, but, you know, but again, he, I think he just thought, nah, you know, it's, I was just I just, you know, I literally I just coughed so hard that maybe I, you know, scratch my esophagus. I'm fine. Yeah. And, um, you know, and the symptoms of it were kind of flu like symptoms. But people said they knew that he was probably really sick because he canceled a Monday morning work session. And people said they never remembered Jim canceling a work session, knew he was really sick. Um, and so by the time uh, – well, let me back up a little bit. So, you know, when he went back to his apartment in New York City, you know, his his kids would come over to check on him and he would be in the bath and say, you know, I'm just, I'm just trying to settle down and, you know, my heart's beating a little fast and I'm just going to go to bed. And, you know, again – he just thought he could write this out and would be okay, as so many of us, including me, do. Now, you better believe that. Nowadays, I go see doctors. But, uh, you know, a lot of students just think, we're going to ride this out. And you never think you're fatally ill. So when, he, when it finally got to the point where he was just, you know, coughing horribly and feeling terrible and really knew that he'd probably go see a doctor. I mean, it's, it's almost charming if it wasn't so sad. He, he really didn't know how to go to a hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and, and, so Jane was with him and she didn't really know what to do. Either. They ended up calling Arthur, their publicist, who was, out, who was actually out in California doing press work for Remy Martin, I think it was. And, uh, you know, it's like one o'clock in the morning, his time. And they call Arthur out there and, you know, said, Jim's here and Jim gets on the phone and says he's sick. And Arthur said, you know, I'd never heard him say those words before. And knew it was something very serious. And so Arthur, you know, all the way from California, arranges for a car to pick him up and, you know, take him to the hospital. And Jim still insists on getting dressed and walking out to the car himself. And by the time the car gets to the hospital, the driver doesn't know where it's very Jim. The driver doesn't know where the emergency room entrance is and drops him off the wrong, the wrong door. And Jim just says, you know, it's fine. And he walks around the corner. He didn't want to bother that driver. That would have been an inconvenience for the driver to have to drive around the block. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Jim walks in the emergency room and, you know, got into a, a wheelchair. They took him in to, uh, you know, examine him. And he was unconscious almost immediately um, and died 20, you know, less than a day later. Yeah. So, you know, by the time he got to the hospital, it was just, it was so severe. There really wasn't much they could do for him. Uh, and you go through his medical, that was one of the things that the Henson's let me look at his medical records and they're just heartbreaking. Um, there just really wasn't anything they could have done. And, you know, and I, there's some information in there and some of the reports that to come back and they said, you know, had he gone to the doctor days earlier, could they have stopped it? And the response sort of was, well, we're not sure because it was such a severe infection that saying even by the time that the symptoms were showing, mm-hmm. it still might have even been too late.
1: Right.
2: Um, it was just that severe.
1: Um, so what do you see as his legacy?
2: <laughs> you, you know, I mean, I, I, think, I think the fact that, you know, they're still making Muppet movies mm-hmm. speaks to the power of those characters. Uh, You know, speaks to the. The the Muppets are fun. You know, the Muppets are family. There's a reason we all. You know, there's a reason with. You know, with the new movies that come out, we're like really rooting for those movies to work. You know, (laughs) we really want them to be good. You know, because the Muppets are so important, and and I think you know that's part of Jim's legacy is again. You know, things have to matter. And, you know, the Muppets matter because the Muppets are, the Muppets get crazy and they're yelling at each other and they're doing crazy things. And then at the end of the day, they all come back together Mm -hmm. and we, and we all know that that's going to happen. And that's sort of the way, you know, Jim was in real life. Jim was the center of the storm of all these crazy performers who are running around being nuts. And there's Jim, the calm at the middle of the storm. And they all, at the end of the day, all come back together and they're all family. Um, you know, so, I mean, Jim's legacy is, is Muppets. It's, it's you know, it's Sesame Street. You know, the huge contributions to Sesame Street. Had, had, you know, when they were putting together Sesame Street, John Stone told Joan Gantz Cooney, they knew they wanted puppets on Sesame Street. He told her, if you can't get Jim Henson to do it, then you can't have puppets on Sesame Street. This is the guy. So, I mean, people knew even then that this is the guy you want. Um, and it's because Jim has that ability to talk right to Everyone. He has the ability to talk right to the kids. And at the same time, you as an adult think he's talking right to you,
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Um, which is why those all work, which is why Sesame Street, all those things still work when you watch them. Um, You know, the, the world mattered to Jim. And I think that's why I think I mean, I think that's his legacy, that that sort of unbounded optimism. And it comes through in his work. Even stuff that in his lifetime didn't quite work the way he wanted to. Something like Dark Crystal. Mm -hmm. Um, Dark Crystal did okay back in the day. Made its money. Because had it not, there would have been no labyrinth. Um, but you know, this was like Jim's big art film and he was you know, frustrated that people didn't get it. The people kept asking him, where are the Muppets? But you know, Jim wanted to make this film. He had that optimism about, this is, a, this is going to be fun. This is going to be beautiful. This is going to be like an opera. People are going to be able to understand it. Even if I make up a language in it, I mean, that's what sort of <laughs> it boundless. And when it didn't work, he was like, why didn't that work? Um, you know, this, this powerful personality that people wanted to be around and, um, you know, the ability to make you feel better just because you made him laugh. Um, you know, they always, Jim people always said he was never the kind of boss who would pat you on the back and say "add a boy." Because in Jim's book, if you you know if he hired you to work for him, that meant you had value. Mm-hmm. You know, he that meant you were great. Um, so, it's well, this is really a roundabout way of answering this. But I mean, Jim, it's just I mean I think it's that unbounded enthusiasm and that verb and that optimism. I mean, that's why again I always tell people you know the cynics need to beware when they read this because Jim really is that way. You know. He's got a darkness. His darkness is well. He wasn't faithful to his wife and he liked to buy cars. Um, you know, he liked to decorate his apartment and tear it down and rebuild it and decorate it again. You now, he liked expensive art, things like that. But, you know, when it came down to it, you know, Jim loved life. Jim loved performing. He really did say, you know, it's a good life. You should enjoy it. I mean, Jim really said that it's a good life. Enjoy it. I really want the world to be a better place for my having been here. I mean, only Jim Henson could say that with a straight face and absolutely mean it without a simple whiff of you know cynicism in it. Yeah, uh, and I think that's you know his legacy beyond even Muppet. that that permeates everything he does. Um, that's why the Muppets work. There's not a whiff, an ounce of cynicism in the Muppets.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. Do you have any idea who you're going to be writing about next?
2: Uh, I don't. I'm I'm I actually had a conversation about that yesterday, but I'm not uh, yet willing to disclose in case it all falls apart. Understandable. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 a tough spot to be. Jim's a tough act to follow. And yeah. I always joke that my niche after Washington Irving and Jim Henson is sort of enigmatic American icons. Um, so, you know, I'm trying to figure out where the next one is that sort of fall. I, I don't want to be, you know, assigned a niche, but I'm just trying to figure out if there's anybody else in there. And I think I've got one, but uh, I've got to see how this all pans out now.
1: Oh, exciting. I've been talking today with Brian J. Jones about Jim Henson, the biography. I'm Oline Eaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening.